Hi, this is Joseph Arthur. Thanks for checking out Come to Where I'm From. Please support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash come to where I'm from. We are an independent podcast, and any contributions you can make are greatly appreciated. It's always an honor, but yeah. I never, what do you do? The actual award, physical right. award, yeah. what are you going to do with it? Display it? Right. You know, imagine like, yeah. the, what am I, Elvis? Yeah. <laughs> like well, you kind of are Elvis. Yeah, you got like a guitar, like a uh, room in a garage. You're sort of Elvis. I yeah. mean, in terms of writing. Thank you very much. You know, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> you in know. the sense of, being, of dying on a toilet while be, overeating. No, you're not that. You're not that version of Elvis. You're I'm, Elvis I'm in this hay. Elvis. <laughs> you're, yeah, exactly. So I always like the music. Like a fatter Elvis better, didn't like uh, you did well. The cold Kentucky rain, um, uh, su- suspicious, suspicious minds. minds. I love those songs. Suspicious oh. minds is like my all time. What favorite. was the one in the ghetto? Yeah, uh, yeah, in the ghettos, it's a great song, incredible, right? So, in the ghetto, suspicious, suspicious minds, minds, and uh. Hello. What, what? What was that? As a dog. <laughs> someone someone, someone at the bar? door. This is a ben? Mi- this is a mystery. Ah. This is the ben? start of a mystery. Ah. All right. And, and rough work. action. <laughs> but um, so music factors into your thinking a lot, I guess. Yeah. You you see, you're a huge music fan, aren't you? Isn't that actually how we met? Yeah. Well, you mentioned me in one in, in one of the books. In one of the books. The, yeah, I like to have in a book a little bit of a soundtrack. Yeah, going on. It's usually whatever, both whatever I'm listening to, whatever I think the character is listening to, and what I think will set the mood. I think I used Honey in the Moon. Honey in the Moon. Because this woman was had been going through a heartbreak, and she created right. her own little heartbreak playlist. playlist. Yeah, and, and uh, Honey in the Moon, classic. Yeah, that was a that was a thrill. I got oh, a lot. Of, I got a lot of good feedback on that. Thanks, man. Yeah. thank you. We're making actually uh, the woods right now. Yeah, we're making it as a Polish TV show. Oh, cool. Yeah, Netflix Poland just finished six episodes. It'll be out later on this year it's really good really atmospheric I don't know what you, wow. music they're going to use yeah but uh, it's moon. really cool you should <laughs> you should be a cool like singer a cameo and actually play it oh yeah I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to I'm actually going to I'm going to send the music to the uh, guy there and see so, and see uh, what we'll take, we can we can figure a way in yeah well I guess it it sort of um, emboldens the emotional landscape of the thing when you add music to it it's yeah. similar to films well, actually, it's really weird. I just did this kind of experimental thing in France um, for my book Runaway. They created a soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was, it was um, produced and, and done by, and I can't pronounce her last name, Hildur, the woman who just did The Joker, um, and Chernobyl. She won the Grammy last week mm-hmm. for Chernobyl, or, uh, for Joker. She's definitely probably going to win the Oscar for it. And she created like a soundtrack so... When you're reading certain portions, you're supposed to be listening to this particular track. And oh, that, gotcha. that's really kind of cool. So, yeah. and I kind of was thinking, well, you know, they're doing it for marketing purposes and all of that. But when I did my public reading where we had her music in the background, I found myself doing a better reading. That's so interesting. Maybe. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. I can't pronounce her last name. I was going to read it. It's, Hildur Gunadut. Two years. Yes, she's Icelandic, and so I can't. I'm. I'm real, and I, I feel really bad about that. I'm really bad with that kind of stuff. Where Which is you, great. Where do you get your your drive from? Do you think? Like, where do you think it came from? Your parents somehow, or growing up, or wh- who could you relate that back to? Your, your incredible work ethic. 
Well, both my parents were hardworking. Right. Um, and I've always treated writing like a job. There's a quote I read once in the Philip Roth novel yeah. where it says, um, amateurs wait for the muse to arrive, the rest of us just get to just work. Get to work. Yeah. It's a great quote. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he didn't That's say a, it, I quoted, he was quoting yeah. somebody else, but I think about that a lot. And so I treat it like a job. Yeah. And so I feel guilty if I'm not writing. I feel yeah. guilty if I'm not. I feel actually guilty that I'm taking time off, right, to do even even this. Yeah. Even, this. even now, I've even, always. But this is going to take you to the next level. That's, right? <laughs> That's what we're hoping. Come for. on, huh? <laughs> but, don't feel guilty. But don't. It's the same kind. It got to be the same a little bit with music. Where uh, if you're not producing, no, it's exactly the right. same. It does, in the past doesn't even factor in. Like in terms of, oh, okay, I've put out 15 records right. or whatever, but that doesn't matter at all. Right. It's, a, it's always about like the song I'm writing today, can this one make, you know, it, that's where I'm basing all my like self-worth on. Right. Do you sometimes um, dislike your old stuff, even if it's great, just because what did that kid know? I mean, that, you know what I mean? Like I look back sometimes at old books. Yeah. Uh, or I compare it to the essay you wrote in college you thought was genius, right? And yeah. now you find it and you read it and you go, oh wait, this is crap. Right. Do you have the same thing with music? Yeah, sometimes and sometimes the opposite. Like it'll be like, oh my God, I was so much better than <laughs> like what happened right. to me. Like it's a roller coaster of sort of self-esteem. Right. The process of, of, of what, and I've heard you talk about yeah, that. Yeah, it's exactly before. the same. It's yeah. fueled by self-hatred and, yeah. and whatnot. But it's also, not to, yeah, it's, it's fueled by all those things, but also what you're saying is so true, where one moment you love what you did, yeah. another moment you hate what you did. Right. So you're constantly a little bit um, off balance. And the other thing right. is, I think this is true for both of us too, is if I'm not, you know, life's about balance. As you get older, you realize that. You mm -hmm. know, I have, a, I have a great family, friends, whatever, health. But if you're not, if I'm not writing well, it doesn't really matter how well those other things are going. Yeah. My life's out of sync. Yeah. If I'm not producing, I'm not writing, I'm in trouble. Right. So to keep me balanced, I need to be writing. Mm -hmm. and pro or producing or creating in some way. Could be but TV where does stuff that fire come from? I don't know. You don't know. I've always been an ambitious guy. I right. Mean, I, you know, I played basketball when I was younger. Yeah. So I've always been kind of competitive and ambitious. I'm not, I shouldn't say, I'm not really that competitive. I'm ambitious. That yeah. sounds like too... I don't really care if I beat you. That's not what I'm after. I'm after doing as well as I can. And so um, there's been a lot of great things in my life that have come about by writing the books uh, and doing the TV and whatever else. And if I stop it, I think part of me probably worries all that goes away. You know? right. And then what am I? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I, so you have no, no clue as to where that... Because it takes an insane amount of drive to be the sort of best... In your in your field, which I think you pretty much are. My parents were, you know, were quite achieving, and I had two brothers, both who went to Yale undergraduate, Harvard Law with mm -hmm. perfect SAT scores. Okay. And I was, I don't want to say I was a dumb brother in the middle, but I was a dumb, the, the, the dumb middle brother comparatively you speaking. You were the dollard. I was. <laughs> I was relatively speaking to those guys. Yeah. Um, but we weren't competitive with one another. But I think we all, because we were far enough apart in age where we weren't. But I think we, you know, that there is a, it's just something I was born and raised with, a, a, a drive to do as well as I can do. I also don't, I hate when I don't do as well as I can. Yeah. I hate when something I hate not out. living up to my potential. Right. And that or sucks. my perceived potential. Yeah. Right. And right. it's, it's a daily battle. Right. For me. Yeah. You know. Because, you know, there's times, I think when a writer starts, and probably saying to a musician, when you start thinking you're good or you got it, that's when you usually suck. I always say yeah. only bad writers think they're good. 
But you also have to think you're the best yeah. on another level. Yeah. Like that's the weird seesaw of self-esteem right. and sanity that you have to deal with all the time. Like, I'm the best. I'm the worst. <laughs> what am I thinking? How come more people don't worship me? You know, that whatever. Yeah, it's, you a, know. it's exciting. This is, it's a strange thing because on, on the one hand, I say I suck. Yeah. On the other hand, I have the hubris to say, pay me money to let me talk to you for 400 pages and tell yeah. you a story. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a definitely, it's a contradiction, but it makes complete sense. Yeah. It's a weird, and same with what you do, right? It's a, it's a, my music sucks, but I want you to pay and listen to it. And, right. And, and, and come to my show or whatever. Yeah. Why would anyone like this? How come more people don't like this? Right, exactly. <laughs> but I think, but so you're driven, right? You're just driven. I mean, look yeah. at, essentially you're asking me that question when how many, you know, you are constantly, you're, yeah. you're I could describe you as sort of a, a protean genius where you're constantly coming up. Your mind it never stops, does it? No. No. So. No, but I also have survival like at my back. Whereas you have that thing dialed in and it and you're still it doesn't you haven't you've not slowed down. Let me give you a clue. In, in any way. If that happens you, when it happens, are, Harlan, right. I'm gonna manifest. Oh, sorry. I'm working when on it, when it happens. Next, next month when next, it happens. Next tomorrow when it suddenly happens it won't change your hunger no, i don't no, i don't hunger. think it would at and this stephen point. king like who's you know i know stephen king or john grisham or whoever mm-hmm. the guys Same who thing. sell oh yeah i mean and they're just as worried that people aren't going to like their books they have yeah, all yeah. that same kind of fears and, and 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 whatever else that that we all have it doesn't yeah. go away you know if it hasn't got, it hasn't gone away for me it's not going away for them it's not going away for the guys but you know around anywhere in that area right the emotional quality in your book i think is one of the huge reasons obviously one of the huge reasons why they're so as successful as they are is people can sort of feel the characters and the um you know along with also obviously the thriller aspect of Mm -hmm. it that you're a genius at but the empathy that you uh have for the characters is is probably what makes that translate wouldn't you say so i'm not i'm the i'm the worst judge of my own stuff like you know probably you are but yes that's what i've been told it's and i work hard on you know it's one thing to make your pulse race the right. most important thing is making your your heart race if you don't right. care about these characters it's not going to work and um so if you don't love these characters i can have the most expensive car in the world but it's got no fuel and it. it's not going to go anyplace right. the characters have to be the fuel so you have to want to spend time with these people you have to care about them they'll be likable yeah. but they have to be human otherwise it just it just doesn't work and i hope that's what i try to bring to the story i try to bring a sense of either romance or love or family or friendship and those bonds i think well you know then you throw it in a in a tight thriller plot mm-hmm. um i think uh work is what makes the books work i hope Right. Yeah. And you uh, have said before that you tend to overwrite the parents because it's your therapy and dealing yeah. with the loss of your yeah. parents at a yeah. pretty young age yeah. and you were like super close to them. Yep. But I'm wondering if that loss was what led you to this sort of heavy duty empathy within yourself to be th- able to write that stuff. I mean, I think there's something definitely there. I mean, the it's not a silver lining, but the silver lining of their death Right. would be that it made me a better writer and artist. No, que- no question about it, that I get things now that I, you know, tragedy, unfortunately, is a good teacher. And yeah. same with music, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. So it's not worth it. I wouldn't trade it for anything. In the, I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't want it. wouldn't wish it on anybody. 
uh, and you can't imagine you can you know, get the, the purest life in the world and still write whatever. But I do think that those tragedies of mm-hmm. losing my parents at a young age definitely influenced both all the ambition stuff probably you're talking about also. Yeah. Part of it may be trying to you know, outrun death, not to get too, too, too deep with it. Um, but there's no question that that sort of a thing uh, will manifest itself into your work. It, ha- it has to. And when I created um, my series character, which I only, of the 30-something books I've written, only 11 are, are with the series character. But I want, you know, I've written, seen a lot of detective series where the, the guy hates his parents or has no relationship with his parents. So I gave him really deep, wonderful, loving parents that were exactly the same as mine. So theoretically, my parents actually age with Myron Bolotars. Myron. His parents are in their 80s now. Right. My parents died, you know, 20 years earlier. Mm-hmm. So that I am, when I imagine that would be my relationship with them. So yeah, I am going to get I am going to overwrite them and get too sympathetic, but it definitely has helped me in terms of trying to understand and writing. And I think it's the same with music, but empathy is such a huge part of everything we do. Not and we're mm-hmm. not going to get political because we said we weren't, but it's really important more than ever that people read or listen to music because empathy is missing and it, it helps. Yeah. Empathy is being attacked, I think, by like all the you know the current age we're in. Yeah, you have to you know you have to really put you know I, t- I teach my kids. I have four kids. I think I, you know one of them's here downstairs. We just yeah. spoke to. But one of the things I always kind of told them is every person you see, every person you walk past in the street or you meet has hopes and dreams. Mm-hmm. Just keep that in your head. Yeah, it just you know it humanizes every everybody's hopes and dreams. Everybody has a you know you hear things somebody may be having a bad day or whatever, right? Uh, I just say everybody has hopes and dreams, and I try as I, as a writer to imagine what they are. Right? Are the kids going in your anybody following in your footsteps in terms of writing or something like that? My oldest daughter, uh, she actually wrote episode five of The Stranger, which right. is the new Netflix show. Yeah, um, eight episodes, The Stranger, now worldwide on Netflix when this comes out. Um, she wrote episode five, and she also did the Teen Strand. So what happens when you do a show with Netflix quite frequently, or at least when I do it? Um, we based it, I'm basing this one off a novel. The novel of Stranger probably is five or six episodes worth of material. Um, but there's things that I like to add, not as a filler. I can make it a five or six episode show if I wanted to. But I wanted to really explore the teens in the book had sort of no role. Um, so we developed a whole story for the teens that's not in the book. Mm-hmm. So if you've read the book, you'll have something new. And if, you know, so Charlotte came up with most of the teen story and then she wrote episode five. That's amazing. Yeah. It, wasn't, it was actually my partner, my producing partner, Nicholas Schindler, uh, who's British, and she's done some wonderful shows, Happy Valley, Last Tango in Halifax, Queer as Folk. Uh, she's amazingly talented. Years and Years this year uh, came out with Russell T. Davis wrote. Um, and she was one who actually came up with the idea of having Charlotte write an episode because she'd seen other, other stuff that Charlotte had written. That's amazing. Yeah. So I was trying to keep out of it as a dad, you know, you're trying to keep an out of it. So the ending doesn't change when you revise a novel for TV. You try to keep I, that similar? I change a lot. Uh, the, if, but I, will, I don't want to give anything away. But in The, stra- the Stranger, I kept the, pretty much the same ending as the book, but I added stuff. Uh, there's about two or three other twists in the last episode that are not in the book. Um, but one of the major one is... And I, I, I'm one of the few who likes to make changes when I do it. Um, so, for example, in the book, I didn't do this to be politically correct or diverse, actually, but in the book, the stranger, who is not the lead character, the stranger who drops bombs on people's lives, is a, a white male in his mid-20s. 
And I thought it would be much more interesting um, to have some of the actresses that I had seen, like the one we ended up having in Hannah John Kamen, who happens to be a biracial woman in her mid-20s, um, played the role. When she came in and read, I'm like, oh, that's it. It's Hannah. She's exactly what we need. It works better visually. So I actually like to make changes when I, when I do it. Other author, authors do not. Yeah, but you said your favorite adaptations are usually not sort of true to the novel, like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest yeah. and that kind of stuff. Yeah, because a book's a book. Yeah. You know, if, you're, if I was to adapt one of your songs, for example, into a TV show, yeah. to keep exactly... That's a good idea. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, make, make a musical, right? I mean, yeah. this is a... You, yeah. def, you should definitely write a musical. Well, I got one called The Ballad of Boogie Christ that oh, I want right. to turn into that a musical. Yeah. yeah, why not? I know. Right. I need to just, uh, I don't know. Oh, we need a good writer. Yeah. We can, we'll come up with a story. We can do that. Yeah? Yeah, that'd be fun. Well, yeah, it's like putting Boogie Christ into the modern world and like he doesn't know he's Christ or something like that. And yeah. then uh, like, I don't know, just you could make it funny too. We have, we're doing it with you. Listen, audience, we're actually doing this as a live. Uh, yeah. We're taking out in our notepads now and going to start taking notes on it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so... Yeah, that reminds me of the, I did. I listened to a lot of your interviews with this like uh, card game where all those writers ended up writing a porno uh, thing oh. in, in between <laughs> the hands when they were like, "That wasn't me." I should yeah, that wasn't out. you, yeah. but it Real was timers. a story story you told. Yeah, yeah. How do you know like when you have an idea that's gonna be a novel? Like, because I, I I assume that you're looking for ideas constantly. You've trained your brain to look for gray areas, yeah. right? Like. That's like uh, sort of the jumping off point if there's a gray area or something like that. It's just, yeah, I mean, it's constantly um, asking what if and... What if. Yeah, so yeah. we're going through, the, through, the, through, the, through life, always ask, you know, trying to change things around. So my next book, The Boy from the Woods, for example. Right. So I was, I was actually hiking in the Ramapo Mountains where the book takes place. Yeah. And I just saw a little kid running by himself. Right maybe five or six years old, and I said, what if that kid had been in the woods his whole life? Like, what if they stopped this kid and no one knew where he was from and he claimed he'd always lived in the woods and doesn't remember parents, doesn't remember anything. And so, and then 30 years pass. Mm -hmm. He's grown up and he's still, no one ever claimed him, no one ever thought, and, he, and because of how he grew up, he has to return to the woods. He basically sort of lives in the woods, almost a modern day, um, Thoreau. Tarzan or right it's a, you know, Tarzan or Tarzan. Mowgli or Thoreau so what you know what would that and start thinking like well what if and then what would this guy be like what would he be good at what would his life how can I mix him with other characters where can I throw in a story and that's how my mind kind of kind of works but I'll ask that what if a million times yeah and every once in a while it'll lead to a, a main story and every once in a while it'll lead to it'll lead to a, a, something more modern yeah. mo a minor in the book yeah the same thing we're in you know, a Central Park right here, out here. We're by Central Park, but one day um, for the book Runaway, I was sitting in that park. Yeah. And I was sitting right by the Imagine Strawberry Fields. Strawberry Fields. Yeah. And someone was strumming a guitar, mangling mm -hmm. a John Lennon tune, unlike you would do, which would be really nice. No, I would knock that shit out the park. That's it, man. You, <laughs> you would be, you'd be raking in those dollars. Dude. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's my side hustle. But the guy. <laughs> <laughs> but the guy was definitely not looking good. And I started mm -hmm. to think, well, what if I looked over and that was my daughter and I hadn't seen her in six months? Right. Can I start a story like that? And you just keep, I just keep going like that. I make it sound simpler than it is because it takes three months of doing what I'm talking about before an idea really is 
is far enough along. But to start th- that's it. what I mean because you you're probably on the hunt for those kind of all the time, right? Does that ever can you switch that off, or is that like a daily thing that you do? What if? It's something I want to switch off. It's not an uncomfortable thing. So yeah, but like you know, my the people who hang out with me or my friends know that I'm a distracted guy. You probably yeah. are too as a musician. Yeah, and they kind of accept it a little bit. You know, you're not always present. You know, mm-hmm. you're always a little drifty off. Your eyes are always kind of traveling elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, I find like when I'm working, I become flakier. Like, I, it's harder for me to like in yoga. There's uh, these balancing right. postures, right foot and left foot and stuff, and it's like. I've heard it said, like, if you can balance on one side, that's more your practical side, and the other side is more your arty side. My arty balances are always, like, on point. My practical <laughs> ones, I'm, like, stumbling all over the place, you know. Well, you're pure, you're, you're, you know, they say ego and id. You're pure artist. You really are. I mean, everything, yeah. your whole, you know, your whole, everything I know about you, and I don't yeah. know you well, but I know you somewhat. Yeah. You are a, you're a pure artist. You know, you live the art life. Yeah. I have, what's weird is I sort of have a, a normal life, I, quote yeah, unquote. I put that in quotes. Better, that's better. Like you have a great balance. The fact that you have this enormous art career, and and such a great family life too. Like that's you, you're you're a well developed human being. I hope you're grateful for that. Uh, well, I'm that's grateful all. for that's all really I have. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll, we'll leave it at yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah yes. Okay. Yeah. Most people can't do that or a lot of people can't i shouldn't say that though because i think you speak things into existence but one of it is that um i had started having the more major success late in life Mm -hmm. so i i always wonder how a kid who hits it with big when he's 18 19 20 25 yeah my first new york times bestseller was when i was 39 Right. It was my 10th published novel, but it was my first bestseller. And yeah. it was a, a head Tell screw. Tell no one. Tell right. no one, right. Yeah. It was, and it was a head Which was screw. an awesome movie, too. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. the poster's right behind your head, the French poster uh, right there for the movie. That's amazing. That yeah. guy who plays the main... Francois Clouzet. He's like a Dustin, French Dustin yeah. Hoffman. Has anybody <laughs> yeah. else said that? Oh, yeah. yeah everybody oh, yeah. says that. He won the Cesar Award, which it's is like their marathon Oscar. marathon man. Yes, well... It was interesting. The whole thing was a, was a labor of love, and this is also an example of when you go with your heart. It had been sold to Hollywood, mm-hmm. and after a certain amount of time, they said I had one chance to get it back. Yeah, and they paid a fair amount of money for it, and I needed the money at the time, no question about it. And this crazy French guy named Guillaume Canet, yeah. who's married now to Marion Cotillard, or they have children together, they're a couple was calling me. I, I loved to make it. I'm like, dude, you know, I've already optioned it to Hollywood. Hollywood's going to make it. They have a director on board. Michael Apted was supposed to do it. You know, a million people are supposed to do it. And I read the script and I, and I hated it. Mm-hmm. I just hated what they did to it. And I, it, when it reached this three-year mark and then it kind of was falling apart, I said to the Guillaume, like, if you can take away the option, mm. I'll, I'll give it to you. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll sell it to you instead. And everyone's like, why? Why would you want a French movie? You could have an American movie made. And it was the best movie I ever made. I just went great with my gut. Move, yeah. Yeah, it was a great, you know, because even today, the movie came out in 2006. It's still a legendary watched movie. Oh, yeah. And I give Guillaume Canet in that, and he had a you know, wonderful cast of led by Francois uh, Clouzet. It was so much fun. We had so much fun making in France. It was a labor of love. No one really thought we would, we would do big, and we ended up hitting it out of the park. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it, that, movies like that don't come along all that often. Yeah, you get luck. I've been I've been really lucky with all of the adaptations that I've done. There's none that I hate. Um, some I like better than others, but there's none I'm embarrassed about. There's none I blame on anybody else. Yeah. 
So it's been cool. Did you were you working with Lawrence Kasdan? Yeah, Did, we we tried putting something together, didn't happen. Oh, it so didn't happen. Not, didn't oh, okay, happen. I was wondering about that because I yeah. was like, great yeah. dude, great man, but it just didn't. You yeah. know, I, I can if you know, it just didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. Like collaboration is interesting. Yeah, well, it's good when you work with somebody mature like Larry, who's had a lot of success, and so neither one of you have your egos involved in it where you can't just say, you know what, this ain't gonna happen, and you just kind of walk away. There's never any hard feelings. I've never had that with anybody that I've worked with. It's so important to me that when I do the collaborations, I work with people I, I like and respect, yeah. and so I've never had yet that incident where we don't like each other, we're fighting, and I've had plenty of things not, not happen. I mean, that, that's part of the business. Mm -hmm. Well, you have like, um that work ethic or a lot of a lot of it's funny with writers a lot of people are always like how do you do it like what do you do like you know like they it's this thing that is a mystery there's so many books about how to write and stuff like that and hearing you talk about writing it's just like no you just do it you just you know you you just if it's something can make you write that's good right if, if not bad that's my saying know? right that's that's yeah. what it's stripped down to the best yeah. writing guide I've ever read, if anybody is out there interested in yeah. most of it, is Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird, 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 Bird yeah. which is a fantastic book. on Even even just entertaining, if you just want to learn about the creative process, mm -hmm. I think Anne does a great job of getting into the head of why, you know, what we are and, and all those insecurity th insecure things that we, we talked about. But at the end of the day, I, I know if I do it, it's good and it'll get done and, and work. A lot of it is getting your ass in the chair. It's just... It's easy to get distracted, right? You know, it's more and more. Right? Are and you kidding? It's, I know the phone's a dead. Th uh, you know, the phone it's is insane, and I'm sure for music too. Oh, it's crazy! It's just it kills, and so it's really hard. It, it's not easy. Um, the only thing I will say is that you know, when I had a little bit of time, the day that my first the Tell No One hit the New York Times bestseller list, the very day mm -hmm. I know the day because it was July 11th, 2001, and the reason I know is my fourth kid was born. Right. So I had a seven four two a newborn kid, right. four of them. And my wife is a pediatrician, so I was home more than she was to take care of those kids. And so I learned early that when you have the time, you gotta fight for it and you have to use it. You can't waste it. And I think that probably helps me out even today when I have more time. Do you have um, like specific times, like people sometimes, oh, from seven to 12, I always write. Do you have anything nah, like that? I don't because I end up doing something like this or this morning I had a, some, uh, some other media stuff I had to do. So I just, you know, um, but I do fight on my, my assistant and people around me know that I get really grumpy if I'm not writing. So um, yeah, I'm lucky enough to have books published in a lot of languages. So all of them always want me to speak to media and I have to kind of fight and say, I love, look, I love the media. I love attention. I want my books to sell. I want to be a partner and all of that, but not today. And so right. I'm blocking you out. You know, you, you have, let's do one day, I'll go for three hours straight, have them Skype into me or whatever else. Um, so you have to kind of fight and balance for that time. Right now I'm feeling very, I am feeling weird because, um, you know, we're doing the promotional stuff for The Stranger. Today we just dropped the trailer and, you know, we'll have tomorrow, we'll have this, we'll have screenings and media. And I'm starting to feel a little anxious because I haven't been at my book recently. And so How I get long? the shakes. Um, I, well, I, I did a few pages maybe three days ago, but I, I'm, I'm kind of, I was kind of on a roll right. and I'm off that roll and it's hard to get back on that roll. Yeah. So it's just something, you know, you have to kind of, it's, it's, you know, look, this is a really a champagne problem. 
Yeah. This is a first world problem. I'm extraordinarily lucky that my problem is that people want to talk to me or whatever else. It's, it's not a problem, but it makes me anxious. Mm -hmm. It's one of the things that makes me anxious. But it's also, you know, it's that, that it's, you know, like there's countless books written about the writing process and how do you do it and how do you stay on so you're kind of aware that keep staying in that flow state is valuable and should be protected. Yeah. You know, and I, I've been out of it, but like, and it is a, a self esteem thing. Like, sometimes you get so full of self hatred that everything that you do sort of turns you off. And then, like, you have to build yourself back up to where you just get back into that flow and you don't get too precious about anything. So, like, I go back and I'll reread. That's mm -hmm. to get myself back. What do you do as a, as a musician to get back? Like, we haven't done it for a while. Yeah. Do you just start playing old songs it's, and you do a couple live shows? Does that get you moving? What gets you moving? Yeah, it's, it's about finishing a song. It's about not, like, just, like, oh, here's a little part. Let me, like, record it into my notes and then and then I don't go back to it. It's about getting, it's about completing one and then completing another one. And then, you know, and just getting into that sort of factory mode, you know, where you're not being overly judgmental. Right. But that's you, the hardest part. That's the hardest part. Yeah. But once you get back into it, it seems like this is not that fucking hard. Why, right. why was this so hard? Like right. This is easy, actually. It's just, you psych yourself out. And the longer you do it, it doesn't necessarily get easier. There's different complications that come. Well, exactly. The first word is the know? hardest word to write. The second word is the second hardest word. Yeah. And the hardest part is also to turn off that voice in your head that says you suck. Right. Or write with it there and just ignore it. I always yeah. say that's every, and everybody goes through it. I mean, so you have to, it paralyzes you and you just have to fight through that paralysis. I think, I think the hugest difference between a writer and musician who is producing stuff and one who's not is who can fight through that voice saying you suck? Who can fight through that paralysis? So when I write, yeah. and Anne Lamott calls it the shitty first draft, I give myself permission to suck because I can Boom. rewrite it. That's it. Right? That is huge key right there is don't expect it to be like groundbreakingly genius. If you do, you're you're going to be paralyzed. Right. Because it's just not going to come, it's not going to come off like that right. to you. It's like... You know, you have to give yourself permission to be terrible. Exactly. And if and, and you could always rewrite it. That's, yeah. You should. Yeah. Yeah. All of my friends, and I, I have friends with every writer you probably know, we all rewrite yeah. a lot, except for that one guy that no one talks to and he's a real asshole. Right. Outside of him, all of us admit. Now, you know, so. Who's that guy? <laughs> I, but it's so key. This is really, I really think the single biggest difference between the, the person, if you're listening out there, between the person who's going to produce music or produce words on a page and the one who doesn't is the one who's going to let himself suck, suck. and just get through it and say, okay, it's going to suck. Mm -hmm. And you know what happens? You read it the next day. It's usually not nearly as bad as you think anyway. Right. But that day, let it feel like it's going to suck. And if it does suck, it's fine. You're going to rewrite it anyway or throw it out. It was right. a learning experience at the worst. Mm -hmm. So that's... You know, part of writing is chipping away, and and you're throwing out, you end up throwing away a lot of stuff that you think at at some point is is good. I'm not sure who says it, Hemingway or, or maybe it was that said, uh, you know, you have to kill all your darlings. I never know who's who gets credit for saying that, but you do. You have to kill your darlings anyway. So, you know, that's part of it. Did you ever like get into like other forms of writing before you found? The thriller genre, um, like, did you get into the beats? You just mentioned Hemingway. Right. 
Were you? Were, did you have any sort of aspirations towards other forms than the one you've landed on? Well, I've read them all. I love them all. Here's the thing, and this is—it's really Bukowski, hard. Bukowski? Are you a fan of Bukowski? Uh, no, no. I thought you wouldn't be <laughs> no. for some reason. No. <laughs> First of all, I do need—I do need in my own. Even like it's funny. I was watching a musical recently. Someone, someone, cats also like. Yeah. I need a story. Right. I don't care how good the music is. I need a story. Yeah. You know? Anyway, but um, I forget what I was going to say now. Sorry. Uh, sorry. About Hemingway and Beats and well, you, oh, you, the thriller. Okay, yeah. so. I'm considered a thriller genre writer, and that's fine. I don't really care how I'm labeled. But for me, thriller is not a genre or mystery or crime fiction, whatever you want to call it. To me, it's it's a form. It's like, right. it's like saying a haiku or sonata. Yeah. It's a form in which I can do anything I want to do. The same yeah. way a sonata, poem, haiku can do anything in that form. So within the thriller form, I've been able to do friendship, romance, love, family, all the themes that interest me, redemption and hope, which is in every one of my books. Right. But what I love about the form is it makes me tell a story. I don't get lost in the genius of that is Harlan Coben to lecture you on how smart I am. I force myself to tell a story. And right. if you think about it, and I, if, you, if you think of any novel that you've loved that's over 100 years old, especially, right. they all have a crime in it. Dostoevsky, Oscar Wilde, Dumas, Dickens, who, who, they all have crime. Right. So it's not really, um, and I'm not comparing myself to them in any way, shape, or form. What I'm saying is is that I don't look at, you know, I don't try to be formulaic or any of that sort of thing. It's just that what I find is I love to make you turn pages and stay up all night also. So I'm entertaining you, and I can still explore all the themes. The Boy from the Woods is really heavily political, the new book, for mm -hmm. me, very political. But I can do it in a way that still forces me to tell a story. That's the beauty of the of a certain form, like the thriller. Yeah, like limitations almost. Yeah, I can it keeps you? It keeps me telling a story. So I can't if I go off too far on a tangent, I'm forced to find a a better way of revealing whatever I want, whatever master masterly thing that I know that you don't know that I want to bestow upon you as a superior being. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have to do it in the form of a story or I don't get to do it. Yeah, it's kind of like don't bore us, get to the chorus. Yes. <laughs> Honestly. Right, because it's like I want to just write a tune that you that you like. But do you do... You know, but then within the tune that you like, I want to try to put some smart shit too. Well, do you do you, do you, do you rewrite a lot? Do you rewrite a lot? It depends. Right. It's it's different. It's different all the time. Like there are times when a song will just like fly out of the sky, but that only happens when I'm in the ring with it every day. Right. Like so even the ones that fly out of the sky are still part of this, you know, ensemble of hard work. No, you they, so, you know what I mean. You, you know, one of my favorite songs here is "I Miss the Zoo." Right now, tell me about the writing process of that one. That, that was one nuts. That one fell sense. out of the sky. Really, I was actually because I just rode up here on the West Side Highway, so I wrote that. Similarly, I was riding my bike on the West Side Highway, and the line just "I Miss the Zoo" came into my head, and I stopped and had my phone, and I just wrote that long form poem. It just. Boom, like that. How many words are in that? A I don't know. I've got, <laughs> I mean, I've got no idea. It's, it's, it's I have one of your but, longest songs, yeah, lyrically speaking. Lyrically, it's, yeah. it's definitely my longest. Famous yeah. Friends Along yeah. the Coast no, is also bananas. Thanks, yeah. dude. Lyric-wise, it's, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it it's just these long poems. I, I, actually, I love that. 
Well, it really is. If, you, if you're listening, and you, I'm, I'm sure you're already a fan of Joseph Arthur, but if you haven't listened to I Miss the Zoo, because not only is it the, do that long yeah. poem, but when you stop and I Miss the Zoo, yeah. you get exactly what you mean by that. Right. There, was time, there was a time in my life where you tweeted something. I don't remember what it was anymore. And I tweeted back to you, I Miss the Zoo, because right, you I knew exactly that. what I meant. You know, it's like yeah. there's a moment in all of our lives when it's a, it's a feeling of nostalgia sort of thing when I Miss the Zoo sort of sums it all up. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So I was curious about you writing that one. Thanks, man. Yeah, yeah. I, like I've been recently. A biologist told me the brain arose to facilitate movement. Have you ever heard no, anything like that? No, it's pretty interesting, though. Isn't it? Yeah, it's really I, like cool. it. Really, because I got into physical fitness a lot in the last couple few years, and and I was, you know, you kind of chastise yourself, like, oh, one of my dumb athlete, now, you know, or like <laughs> this, that, the other. But this biologist was like, a, the brain arose to facilitate movement so that your the whole purpose of your brain is movement and so when you are running or doing some kind of activity that's when those ideas the best ideas can sometimes land do you find that do you do anything along those lines when you like wake up do you have a daily practice to keep to keep yourself hatred away enough <laughs> to get down some words I, like I, I do work out and I, and I change up, you know, I'm one of those guys who thinks this, whatever I find is going to work great for the rest of my life. Right. And then it doesn't and I lose it and I get it back. I'm also getting a little older where some of the things I used to do, I just can't, I don't want to do it. I'll, I'll get hurt, but I still lift. I do, uh, I recently I've been doing a lot of treadmill in the morning and, um, yeah. What do you call it? The elliptical. elliptical. But I do find when I'm moving and walking, and if you're stuck, that we say take a walk. One of the good things about a phone is, like every once in a while, I will try to, and I never work in terms of prose, but it'll work in terms of ideas, where I'll stick the phone in my face and just talk out the story mm-hmm. as I'm walking. Maybe you've done this with lyrics also. And, you know, I have one of those programs that types it up so it gets it all wrong. Right. But at least I'll remember it <laughs> and, then, and then try to make it into something shinier or newer when I get back. But, yeah, yeah. That's an interesting thing. I have to really think about that. If I'm if I move more, am I writing better? If I'm just sitting at my desk, am I not am I not writing as well? I don't know the answer to that. I'm gonna I'm gonna work on that. The though. brain arose to facilitate movement. What about I yoga? That. I used to do yoga a lot. My least flexible person alive, but a couple times I got <laughs> hurt and then I stopped. You know, and yeah. I, but I loved it because it was something also I was terrible at. And you know, you go to a class. I'm six foot four. Yeah. I'm the only guy in the class usually back in those days, let's yeah. say. Um, and so you suck at it and you're okay. You know, you're I'm letting go of it. I, I love yoga when I was doing it. Right now my shoulder starts to hurt if I do down dog too much. So, I, you know, I'm like, I'm sounding like an old grumpy man, but I don't, you know. So I haven't been doing it. Uh, I haven't done it the last few years, but I did go through about 10 year period where I was doing it a fair amount. Yeah. It's it's something I do pretty much every day lately. I, you do like do you do like salutations or you? I, mean, I go to I go to a hot yoga studio. Uh, I go to a class because they can they push you so much further. Yeah, than yeah, yeah. You're gonna go anyway. Right. So I haven't yeah. done the hot yoga. Uh, well, I, thought, I, I shouldn't. I did the medium. What, like the medium hot. Yeah. This wasn't fully hot, and it was it was pretty hot. I yeah. I do. I always enjoyed it. I always felt great afterwards. But the other thing was it was an hour and fifteen minutes, and you had to drive there and drive back, and then I started. My mind started to go toward the end of it. Can we just make this a half hour? I got to get back to writing. Yeah. You know, so. Well, so famously, you went to the same college and the same time as David Foster Wallace yep. and Dan Brown. And, yep. Um, did, do you think that, do you, do you think about that? Like how those, like the, those, that trifecta of massive writers all went, were landed in the same area? Like, 
And there's others. Chris Bojalian, who wrote Midwives and has a book out, was there at the same time. Susanna Grant, who just did the TV show Unbelievable on Netflix and done a number of movies. Aaron Brovakovich, also there at the same time. That's incredible. Bill Amond, who did Foxtrot Comics for years and years Mm -hmm. in your Sunday paper, also there at the same time. Um, Mark Costello, who wrote a National Book Award finalist called The Big If, also lived on the same floor as David and I, freshman year. So it's really... A remarkable run that Amherst College, which only had 400 students a grade, That's um, had going on during those early 80s years. So I don't know. I don't necessarily think there was much in the water there or whatever else it was. What I, Amherst was, and it still probably is, very good at, you know, um, all it was was about critical thinking mm-hmm. and writing. I guess other kids were taking science courses. My wife was there also. She's a, she's a pediatrician now. Um, but Crit- critical thinking, really critical thinking, like was conspiracy huge. theories. You mean? No, no, no. <laughs> well, today you went right. You'd question it. I mean, today, as, as con- the conspiracy theories online just drive me nuts. Absolutely drive me nuts. But really, that's sort of yeah, we're always writing, always challenging yeah. ourselves. And so freshman year, I lived in Stern's dormitory in four oh five, and David Foster Wallace was in four oh six. That's insane. Yeah, great guy. I miss him. I miss him a lot. I have a f- hilarious letter from David that he wrote me. Uh, I, I, I publicly showed it for the first time a few years ago at Amherst when we were doing a, da- a, a retrospective on David's life. It was absolutely hilarious because first David writes, because um, I dated my wife in college, so he writes part of the letter. He goes, are you still with Ann Armstrong? You know, I know you guys were tight. Or, oh, and then he goes, oh my God, suppose you, she broke your heart or you broke up. How insensitive of me. I wish I had white out. And he crosses it out in pencil where you can clearly read it. In the mm-hmm. margin, he just writes, void. Oh, my God. <laughs> he writes, void. <laughs> and his last line was warning me about Publishers a- Weekly reviews because it's right before my first book came out. Mm-hmm. And he says, Publishers Weekly makes my ass wet. That wet? Was the, makes my ass wet. That was the last line. What does that mean? <laughs> exactly. <Do> you know? Makes <laughs> my ass wet. I think it was a negative thing. I don't think it's a good thing. But it's a hilarious... I don't want a wet ass. It's a great... It's a hilarious letter... <laughs> well, not all the ...from time. a dear friend and, uh, yeah. you know, his, his passing. But he had, um, you know, David, as somebody explained to me, you know, he had a terminal illness. Depression. And, yeah, it was, it was terminal. It was, but he had a, it was terminal. Yeah. I didn't know he left campus for a year. I had no idea. I thought he was taking just time off, but he was actually, you know, had, had some sort of issues with his depression and couldn't go back to, to campus for a year. So, you know, I was very naive to a lot of it, um, a lot of that kind of, you know, mental health issues, especially in the in the mid-'80s when we were in school. Uh, and he's been dead now 11 years, so yeah, yeah it's terrible. It is terrible. Yeah. Sorry that you lost your friend. Yeah. Well, we you know, Dave and I were not close, but we were close enough. You know, close we enough, we yeah. were colleagues, and I never forget when he was writing Infinite Chess, we were doing something together. We were doing a reading together, and he says to me, he goes, "I got an issue." And I go, "What?" He goes, "I can't figure out how to end a book. You always know how to end a book. How do I end right. a book?" And I'm like, I don't know. And just kept writing. So I goes, well, so I just keep writing it. And it was Infinite Jest, which was how many pages yeah. long. You just that's a good example of what you were kind of speaking on with like the sort of suppo- like the supposed thriller genre yeah. or whatever you want to call it. He didn't have that same limitation yeah. f- foisted upon him. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And, it, and in a way, yeah, it does make for a run on sentence. Right. Yeah, you know, like I, you know, you guys would have gotten along. As beautiful as a run-on sentence is, (laughs) and his, 
I, and that sounds terrible to call no. it a run-on sentence. No, but, but I think you know what I mean. But he also was, like, you know, he the was the best protein. run-on sentence ever of all time. It's great. It's know? true. Right. Like, he just kept going, and now right. he's a genius. Yeah, he could just keep going. I mean, he basically yeah. and the footnotes. He, he would have written an "I Miss the Zoo" type song. I could right. just see David writing well, something. Well, like "I Miss the Zoo" is like an example of a run-on sentence of a song. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but in a great way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but in a good in a way. genius way. Yeah. I mean, David was um, the, yeah. the smartest guy I ever knew. You know, and it was scary when he, when he, you know, he, when I didn't get what mental illness was and, you know, it's kind of like, well, he's the smartest guy I know and he's decided to check out. Yeah. And I didn't get, um, until I actually read some of the stuff David wrote on it, um, really started to understand what, what suicide was. And, you know, I'm still learning, but yeah, anyway, but he was, a he was, he was the smartest guy I ever knew, which is intimidating when I first met him at Amherst and didn't realize how smart he was. And I thought, oh shit, everyone in Amherst is this smart. I'm going to fail out of here in a week. Yeah. So, but that's because I was hanging with David and I was learning. A hyper genius. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. What do you think happens when we pass on? Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, well, um, I do, I, 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 there's a, a quote from um, Shakespeare that death uh, is an undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. Wait, say that again death slower. Is, <laughs> death is an undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. That's insane. In short, we have zero idea because nobody has told us. In my view, nothing. It's probably, probably the same as when before you were born. Um, but yeah. I don't know. And I, I, I certainly don't believe any of the religious stuff that we're told. I don't believe in a heaven or a hell or or anything I don't believe in reincarnation but I'm open I'm really kind of open-minded but I yeah. just think again undiscovered country from whose travel you know whose travel no, you know no travel returns from who's born no travel I love returns. that I've never heard that I yeah. like this on reincarnation though it's like I, I don't know if we get reincarnated or not but it's no stranger the idea of being born twice than it is the idea of being born once yeah it's true <laughs> you know what I mean that's <laughs> true it's already so fucking strange right. that when people try to like say well this is, doesn't make practical sense it's like well what does <laughs> I think, <laughs> you know right. what I mean I think when you get stoned and they like, pick up the sand thing and go I'm like this sand if you think of all you know is, is our planet if you think of all the sand in all the world our planet is small than one grain of sand yeah so you started getting heavy with this stuff so i'm open-minded to to what could be i don't think but i i do believe that none of us have gotten it right I yeah don't, i don't think any of us have gotten it right yeah do you so do you have any sort do you pray or anything like that no. do you ever no no i don't i don't man well i i, I do that I takes a strength of, in no, my mind it's a it does yourself. here's the thing prayer is an interesting thing for but, me because either you know if you're praying then you don't think if, if you think there's an omnipotent God, then yeah. if you're praying to him, you're sort of like, well, you got it wrong, God. Let me tell you how it should be. It's sort of like a... What I just... My, my prayer is often like this. Please help me. <laughs> <laughs> Do I, that's my favorite. That's my favorite prayer. Oh, I did that please, too. please help me. Please. Please don't screw up. <laughs> please. <laughs> please don't. Please don't let me screw up again. <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. So like it's like that's my favorite prayer. Yeah, we do. But do you expect intervention from it? <laughs> I mean, like I often like it'll be interesting because sometimes if I really pray from my heart. And then like something will happen and it'll seem like just normal life or whatever. But when I look back, I'll go like, I wonder if that was help because it did help me. There you go. You know what I mean? So then I don't know. Yeah. But I ask that question generally thinking like people that say they do pray need or you know are, are sort of need more than the people that don't like because I, I don't know how people don't pray because life 
kind of scares the he- the bejesus out of me. Well, if by if by <laughs> prayer you mean self-talking, which is kind of what you're saying, yeah, and realizing you're not actually. I mean, it depends on your definition of prayer. Do I talk to myself? Do or, I w- oh, do I have hope and dream and and do those sort of right. things? Of course. Do I believe there is an omnipotent being who's kind of listening, actually listening, and mm-hmm. may change things around because of it? No. Okay. So I guess that yeah. would be the answer. But I'm op- again, I'm open. See, yeah. Prove me wrong. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm very much a science guy. I want to. Yeah. I, I want to see. I'm, I'm very reasonable, uh, and uh, see, I don't science, close any doors. Science to me is the blueprint of all the woo-woo shit. You know what I mean? No. Well, like, I don't separate science and woo-woo. Oh, okay. Like, science to me is just the blueprint. Like, the woo-woo is the house. Science is the blueprint of the house. Oh, that's interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah, I would say, though, it was somebody went off the rails on the blueprint. They made it really creative. There's There's a blueprint for a house that was probably pretty stable and maybe a little boring, and they went nuts, and maybe now the foundation ain't so great, but it looks really cool. Right. Yeah. To take it too far. The house is coming down. The metaphor and analogy too (laughs) far. So talk a little bit about the fact that you don't like to, that you like to write more about the missing, a missing person rather than somebody who's like killed off and the fact that you like the gray, you look for the gray areas to spring from and like characters that aren't all just bad and white, but are sort or I mean, uh, black and white. Right. Bad and good, <laughs> bad and white. <laughs> no, like, um, you know what I'm sort yeah. of getting at? Yeah, it's I do. Chris Farley worded question there for you. <laughs> <laughs> I always love this. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's my interview yeah. style, is no. Chris Farley on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> you know, to the show, you know, uh, just to yeah, get, up, get, get up topic here, but the NFL just celebrated its 100-year anniversary. Yeah. So they, for some reason, somebody who's at the NFL wanted me to be on this show where yeah. they just talk about things that happened in the NFL, and they were, it was like Chris Farley questions. It was like, yeah. what was your favorite moment in the yeah. NFL? And I was like, well, do you remember when, like, remember? Mark Bavaro had that catch? Yeah. yeah. Wasn't that cool? Remember yeah. Tell, tell us about one. it. That was just, awesome. Right, just tell it. That's my interview style. Just tell it. Right. Yeah. yeah you're doing good. <laughs> well, to answer the question, I mean, most uh, when you think about crime fiction, you think about murders. And I've had murders, but rarely. Um, yeah. Because when somebody's dead, they're dead. They right. end, end of that sort of mystery. But if somebody's missing, there's hope. There's hope. And yeah. hope can you know make your heart sore or it can crush it like an eggshell. Yeah. And so you have that added dimension where you could actually be made whole. <laughs> It could be also related, frankly, to my parents' death, because the one thing is death is permanent. Right. And so I accept the fact, as heartbreaking as it is, that my parents who died before my books came out and all that will never know any of this, will never know their grandchildren right. and all that sort of a thing. So if they were just missing, and the mystery was they were missing, and somehow yeah. I could bring them back to life, yeah. that's kind of what um, hope, you know, that kind of hope. And so I think it adds a level of suspense and a level of desire um, and just, you know, t- for me, it works better as a, as a tool to explore, um, society in general. Right. People are missing. You can be made whole. Yeah. Dead. They're dead. That's what got you to tell no one, right? You were, yep. you, you were thinking of seeing them. Yeah. Thinking of seeing my parents alive again. Yeah. Camera. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be cool. <laughs> no, I was thinking, um, to quickly tell the story, um, I, was th- I was looking at a webcam and I was thinking uh, about my parents and how they never saw their grandchildren. Wouldn't it be great if they were still alive? And I said to myself, what would I do right now while watching this webcam if I saw my parents walk by? Right. <sighs> yeah. 
And so that's what happens in the book. A, a, woman, a man and wife are happily married. She gets uh, murdered, he thinks, and eight years later he sees her on a webcam alive. Is she yeah. alive? Is she dead? What's going on? That's the hook of Tell No One. Yeah. For those who, the French. When you had that premise, were you like, did you know, like, some, if some, with songwriting, there's like, you write songs yeah. and it's like every day you're writing songs or whatever. And, so, and it's, that's good. That's good. This one sucks. So, but there's occasionally one that'll be, you'll just, you know, it's bulletproof. Right. You're like, damn. Right. <laughs> there the Homer, it is. I call it the Homer Simpson woohoo moment. Yeah, the woohoo. Was <laughs> yeah. that like that? That is. Yeah. The only problem was, is when I yeah. came up with that, I'm like, well, how the fuck did that happen? Right. That was the hard part. Once I figured that part out, because I need to know the ending before I start. I can't just start. A lot of my books start with a great sort of setup, twisty thing like that. But if I don't have an answer right. at the end of that thing, you know, if you watch The Stranger on Netflix, if I don't have a good solution to this issue that I open up with, then, then the whole thing is disappointing. So yeah. uh, I make sure I have that. With the exception of one book, I've had that ending nailed down before I write, start writing. Do you meditate on them? Or is it all coming out while you're writing? Both. I, 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 again, I have to know, I start really thinking about the book. So I know the beginning, I know the end. It's, like, it's a journey. Mm-hmm. I don't know where I'm going to, how I'm going to get there, but I know where the ending is. You know, we're leaving today and we're going downtown to your apartment. I know we're going to end up in your apartment, but I don't know if we're going to go via Central Park or we're going to swim across the Hudson or what we're going to do mm-hmm. to get there. Let's swim across the Hudson. Today would be a little, yeah. I actually did the polar bear plunge this year, you January did? 1st. Yeah. Nice. In, in Asbury Park, New Jersey. It's it was, supposed to be good for you. It was, I hear that too. And you know what? It's really funny. Part of it was you're so psyched up and you're with other people and it's a party atmosphere. I, I, I was nervous as heck about doing it. I loved it. And I felt great. And when I got out of the water, I didn't run for a towel. I was freezing cold and with a shirt off and I felt great. And then I was reading right. somewhere that cold showers are actually good for you yeah. and stuff like that. I don't, know if I, I don't know if I want to do that, but I, I kind of got it. I felt good. They're really good for you. I do those every day. Too. Do you? Yeah, because I go. It's the, after after the hot yoga. At the hot yoga, like I have a thing. Like if I just I wake up. Right. Like, I was going to ask you too about like, do you ever sleep on a problem and then yeah. wake up and you have the answer? Yeah. Sometimes subconscious stuff. I, I, yeah, but sometimes I'll write it down, and the next morning it'll be complete gibberish. Mm-hmm. But sometimes there have been times that I've, I, or I, I do, I do TM. So you do. I was yeah. going to ask you if you. Meditate. I don't do it steadily as steadily as I as I want. What I like about TM versus other forms of meditation is that it gives you permission to think. Other ones are keep saying, try to clear out your brain. Uh-huh. If you tell me to clear out my brain, I'm just going to get stressed. But aren't you supposed to hook your brain into a single mantra when you're doing we, TM? We, yeah, I mean, you, you, you do a mantra, but you are, uh, your brain's allowed to wander, and you're oh, okay. allowed to stop even doing the mantra after a while. Oh, really? Yeah, it's a complicated thing, and you're not supposed to teach it, but you sh- I recommend yeah. it. It's, it. It's worth learning, even if you don't use it. It's like... I don't use it that often. I use it when I need it. Well, David Lynch uses it too. Oh well, yeah, that's why I went to David Lynch's guy actually. Uh, oh, okay. Someone at the David Lynch Foundation taught me. Yeah. Taught a number of people, and um, it's a really kind of a useful tool, but it gives you permission. It doesn't keep making you force yourself to have a blank mind, and so I've been able to to use that sometimes to get into thoughts. I'm into the ho'oponopono. What's that? I, I love you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. You just repeat that over and over. Repeat that over and over and that's over. That's pretty cool. It clears it clears stuff. What's it called? Hopa Ho'oponopono. Ho'oponopono. Yeah, this Dr. Hugh Lin, he like healed a whole hospital for the criminally insane. Cool. Meditating on this mantra and reviewing their files. He never saw a patient, but like this was a good uh, hospital in terrible state of disrepair and you know awful. 
under understaffed and after like three years of this guy doing that they ended up closing it down wow yeah. email me that i'd love to i'd love to read more about it i, I always love trying you know i'm not a a, a woo woo guy but i love trying new things and figuring out and, yeah. and for and what i've also come learning is that things will work for a while and then it won't that's the same thing with writing yeah so i don't write in one steady spot like everybody no. else i change it up and i do it until when while it's working and when it stops working, I change. It's like riding a horse. The horse dies. I look for a new horse. You mm-hmm. know? I'll ride that horse until it's exhausted and broken. But um, then I look for a new horse. And so I've learned in life that whatever you think is going to work forever, it's probably not. Mm-hmm. It's okay to change up. You know? So if you're lifting weights for a while, now yoga's working for you. And then Pilates, whatever the hell it is, just keep, you know, it's all right. You don't have to, doesn't don't, mean, you know. Yeah, don't get stuck. Yeah. In your idea. But it's like you're, you're like you feel like a kid who's quitting karate class. Don't just relax. You'll be fine. You'll find something else. Right. right. That's very healthy. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and you even did it in the back of an Uber. You were talking about. Yeah, I rode in the back of an Uber for because I took an Uber and I felt you know I'm Jewish. I felt the guilt about spending the money on the Uber when I was coming into New York a few times, and I would justify it in my head. Well, by the time I pay for parking, blah blah blah. So I started to write in the back of it to feel better about myself, and I started to write well for three weeks. While writing The Stranger, actually, the book that's now the Netflix series, for uh, for three weeks, I just I took Ubers almost everywhere I went. And what would you write in? Your laptop? No, yeah, paper. Paper. I do, I do paper and pen. So uh. sometimes, again, some days I do paper and pen. Some days I type on a laptop. Some days I need the desktop. And some days I'll scratch it on an iPad. Whatever makes you write. Do you Good. find organizing all that stuff difficult? Like if there's papers here and then digital stuff there? like no. Or do you... Have, you have an organized my best mind. is when I'm writing on paper because what I do is this thing very freeing and childlike about hand paper mm-hmm. and then what I do is I'll do 10 or 15 pages on paper and then I'll put it on the computer and what that makes me do is now my first draft is already my second draft right, right. so when you delete something on a laptop it's gone forever sort of thing when I'm drawing on a piece of paper and I cross something out by hand I can still sort of see it Right, And so I'm a little more freeing sometimes that way. I'm not as afraid. So I'll write, say, 10 or 15 pages by hand. Sometimes I'll leave off verbs. I'm just writing just story. I just want to get the story down. Yeah. And then I'll take that and I'll put it into my laptop. So, again, my first draft is already my second draft. Yeah. It's a good thing I recommend to people to try if you haven't tried that before. Yeah, that's a good one. Cool. How do you... Uh, how do you find the gray area in your characters as well as you do in terms of just like the sort of moral ambiguity of many of them that make us relate to them and not sort of hate any of them or there's not like there's not good guys and bad guys like thanks um or there are but they they're likable if they're bad and frankly in this era this is the one thing i joked about on on twitter once and and because i was thinking about this a lot I've been working too hard on my villains. Mm-hmm. My villains always need a reason to do it and a humanity behind Yeah, they're them. gray areas. Right. Now, they're, you know, now the villains, our real-life villains, are about as complicated as Jafar and, and Gaston. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're simpler. But anyway, I like to have them more complicated. I like you to look at the villain and kind of think, maybe I could have seen myself. More empathy. Doing something like that. Again, it's the empathy. It's the empathy, empathy thing. I don't, you know, I can sort of describe a little bit better when I'm doing ideas. I don't really know how a character comes about they just they just sort of do and um i I give them backstory and i kind of wonder what would i be like or what would a person be like if they were going through that and they go through that sort of prison but i don't really work very hard on that they just sort of naturally come about when i first meet them i don't necessarily know all about them when i get them in a room and they start talking to somebody um once they start talking i start getting them 
what people often forget is that dialogue is the best way to, to do character de uh, development. If I'm telling you what a character is like, the way he or she talks is probably the biggest clue as to what oh, that's is, a, to, is to get into their head. That's awesome. Yeah. So if I have them start talking in a room, once they, you know, my, my character, my lead character greets a side character, how that side character responds to him will usually start me saying, oh, that's the kind of person he or she is. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's in the dialogue. So, yeah, oftentimes. Oftentimes. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's cool. Cool. Thanks for doing hey, this. Hey, guys, this was great, man. A lot of fun. Thank you, yeah. guys. Uh, it's been great hanging with you. You can do this. We knew I could probably talk for 10 hours. But uh, Can I just ask yes. a silly question? Sure. Uh, um, compared to rock stars and writers, you mentioned yep. Stephen King and yep. Grisham. Yep. Um, at what point do you feel like you're part of that club or you get that phone call from Stephen King saying, hey, like, you know, just like, uh, I know how it happens in the music world. How does it happen in, in your universe? I don't, I mean, it's funny. I, I don't know the other world. We seem to be, especially in the, in the crime thriller world or that, that particular world, pretty supportive of one another. And, and everybody seems to get along really well. And it's pretty casual because, I mean, except for Stephen King, maybe. None of us have that kind of fame. I mean, I have, you know, we have, I have friends who are actors and, and musicians who, you know, get ridiculous amounts of fame. I don't, you know, writers don't get stopped, writers don't get bothered too often, except for Steve. <laughs> but the rest of us really don't, you know, no one, people don't really recognize us. So I think that we're, we're just, we're much more just sort of down to earth and, and hanging with each other and happy to meet each other. Um, and we're impressed by each other because we're colleagues, but... I don't think we have the same kind of a thing um, that probably the actors and the musicians have. That's my guess. And Stephen King just puts you in his book. Yeah, he? that was really cool. What What was that all about? <laughs> What's the character like? So it's the outs the, the outsider. Yeah. Which they interestingly enough they cut me out of the or they changed it around in the TV adaptation. I was teasing Steve. I'm like, can I play me? In the yeah. miniseries, and he was like, "I don't know if you could be convincing." As You're you. good and tell no one. <laughs> Thanks. That's funny. <laughs> it's Steve. Yes, Steve's very. So he actually, this is a the, the biggest braggy story I can tell. So I'll tell it quickly. But he actually contacted me and said, um, "I want to. I'm, I'm writing a book, and I want to have you as a character in the book. Do you? Is that okay with you?" And I'm like, "Are you serious? That's like the biggest. Well, it's like I'm. A, it's like I'm just moved up from the major leagues, and Joe DiMaggio wants to sit next to me on the bench. I mean, right. It was. I was. You know, I'm a huge fan. I was obviously thrilled. I'm like, yeah, of course. And he goes, well, I'm going to send you a book. Make sure you're okay with it. Which again shows here he is, that top the guy in the world. But he's still a little worried about what my reaction to this book would be. And it ends up. So of course, when I get it, I do an ego search. I search for my name, and it says 63 mentions. I'm like, holy. <laughs> So basically, if you, you see the story or you, you, or you read the book, there's a character who is got him dead to rights. He's committed this murder, there's DNA, there's witnesses, there's everything, he's arrested. The only thing is, he was also at a Harlan Coben book signing. That's funny. And, and there's evidence of him on tape with me and all, and, and all of that that goes on. So it was really very flattering. It was. It was Did you ask moments. him why he chose to put the character at a Harlan Coben? I was book too summer? nervous he might change his mind if I asked anything. I was <laughs> just, like, just like, let it Steve, be. Steve, this is literally the greatest honor of my life. I can't wow. thank you enough. I'm going to dine off this for a very long time, and I have. Yeah, <laughs> nice. that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Thanks, 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 Harlan. All right, guys, thank thanks, man. Really Great. appreciate thank it, man. You. Thanks.
Hi, this is Joseph Arthur. Thanks for checking out Come to Where I'm From. Please support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash come to where I'm from. We are an independent podcast, and any contributions you can make are greatly appreciated. <laughs>